everybody, and welcome to the Cane and Rinse podcast. This is volume 10, issue 494, and today we've got a pretty big task because we are going to be covering the Final Fantasy VII Remake. Uh, joining me, Leah Haydu, in issue 494 are James Carter. The designation given to be my Hojo. <laughs> Brian Edwards. I'd like you all to be respectful of me because within my veins flows the blood of the ancients. That sounds ominous. And Tom Quilfelt. Hi there, Koopo. <laughs> not a whole lot of good not well i guess there were some kupos i i would say maybe not enough kupos but uh we'll we'll get there all right before we get started though uh, i do want to issue a kind of um unusual spoiler warning so we are not covering the original final fantasy 7 in this podcast however uh it is pretty tough if not impossible, to discuss Final Fantasy VII Remake without covering at least a little bit of the original Final Fantasy VII. Uh, I would just like to say, proceed with caution if you have not played the original Final Fantasy VII. It is not our intention to spoil things that happen, especially if they happen after the events of the remake, uh, or are vastly different from the remake, uh, or anything like that. And in fact, I believe we have one member of the panel, I'm not going to spoil that part yet, that uh, has not actually played the original Final Fantasy VII. Uh, so I don't, I don't want to wreck anything for anybody. So if somebody uh, dies, or turns out to be a different character completely, or gets norted, or whatever. Uh, yeah, I knew Brian would get that one. Uh, so, anyway, any of those things, uh, we're going to try and dance around it a little bit. There will likely be some comparisons and some uh, some uh, compare and contrast with the events of the original Final Fantasy VII, which we did cover uh, previously on the Kane and Rinse podcast. And uh, you should go and check out that uh, that issue if you haven't already. We've also done uh, specials on the Final Fantasy VII music, or not the Final Fantasy VII specifically music, but the Final Fantasy music. Uh, and that is uh, on our Sound of Play feed if you want to go back and take a look, listen uh, for those as well. So Final Fantasy VII Remake. What is it? Obviously, it's a remake of Final Fantasy VII, but it's kind of also maybe not. Uh, the game itself is the first part of the long-awaited remake of the original Final Fantasy VII, which was originally released by Squaresoft in 1997 for the PlayStation 1. Gameplay-wise, it is a hybrid of turn-based and active battle. There are different settings that you can choose which kind of affect how hybrid it actually turns out to be some of them vastly more uh more turn-based than not and some uh, a little bit more of a spread but uh, it is heavily focused regardless of which one of those you choose on story and character development there are two modes that you can play uh, in in final fantasy 7 remake there is classic mode and there is normal mode and we'll get a little bit into the um the difference between the two of those once we talk about the gameplay a little later on but major difference there is going to be whether as i said before it's a uh more of a turn-based system or it is a uh, more active system where you just select things given what your meter tells you you can select uh, published and developed, the remake was, by Square Enix, directed by Tetsuya Nomura, and written by Kasuhige Nojima, um, who, amongst other things, uh, also was uh, a writer on the original Final Fantasy VII, as well as 8, 10, 10-2, Crisis Core, 13, 15, Dissidia NT, 
and several Kingdom Hearts games. So this guy is uh, very well-versed in the Final Fantasy series, as well as just kind of the uh, the setting and the feeling that uh, many of these games do seem to embody. So uh, somebody that you would expect in that role. Composers, this is a little bit of an interesting one, and we are going to talk more in depth about the music, of course. Uh, but originally, Final Fantasy VII was, of course, scored by Nobuo Oimatsu, uh, as well as many other Final Fantasy tracks. However, in this game, while they do... Uh, reuse is way too simplistic of a term for what happens here. There is a, uh, a significant amount of rescoring, of rearrangement, uh, and of adaptation of original Final Fantasy VII tracks. But Nobuo Uematsu is not actually credited as one of the main composers of this game. He is credited with the original music for Final Fantasy VII. He is also credited with one new track of the theme song, uh, which plays over the end credits. And um, not, though, the uh, the main score. The composers credited are Masashi Hamaozu and Mitsuo Suzuki, who played bass on the original Final Fantasy VII soundtrack. So, uh, the PlayStation 4 version of Final Fantasy VII Remake Part 1 was released on April 10th, 2020, and there was a second version released. This is called the Intergrade version, and this is why we actually pushed this particular recording back. We were originally going to be recording the show uh, more towards the start of the volume, and uh, when we found out that Intergrade was going to be releasing, we did push that back so that we could have a little bit of time to play some of the uh, upgraded content, which I, for one, am very glad about because the PS5 version looks great. Mm. Uh, more more on that shortly. But uh, Intergrade, which is a combination of a PS5 update with all of the graphical and performance updates that that indicates... And a specific uh, content update called Intermission, which is, uh, we will talk about this uh, a bit. It's not the main story, but it does take place concurrent with the main story. And it stars uh, Yuffie Kitsuragi, who is another character from original Final Fantasy VII who had not yet shown up as uh, as part of the main content. She is the main character in Intermission. And, uh, you know, you get a, you get a whole little storyline with her that's... Uh, pretty significant chunk of content. Uh, that release date was June 10th, 2021. Reviews are quite positive. Uh, Metacritic has it at an 87, uh, and for Intergrade, it's actually an 89, so slightly higher. Open Critic, straight in the middle of those, at an 88. IGN gave it an 8 out of 10. GameSpot gave it a 10 out of 10. And Famitsu with a very high, nearly perfect, but not quite 39 out of 40. Uh, sales were really good. Couldn't find actual specific numbers after they kind of announced them in August 2020. Uh, but even then, you know, uh, over a year ago, they had already sold 5 million copies worldwide, with 3.5 million of that coming over the opening weekend. And according to Square themselves, it has the highest digital sales ever for any of their titles. It also, in March of 2021, was a free PS Plus game. So, uh, that's a lot of very dry information, and I want to get more into the the moist in, interior interior of Final Fantasy VII, which is a really gross thing. Now that I've said it, uh, so I'm going to shut up now, and I'm going to have you all talk about your histories. Tom, please okay. start us off. <laughs> no problem. Uh, moist, yeah. Um, so for a long a long while, Final Fantasy the original was my favorite piece of media. Full stop. 
and I'd beaten it like eight times, including on an old iPad where the world map ran at about 10 frames per second. Um, so I still managed to get all the way through that. And uh, particularly the soundtrack of the original game was also one of my favourite pieces of media in and of itself. And I, I literally think about it and uh, Uematsu's music on a daily basis. Um, and, and FF7 was the game that introduced me to RPGs and to the series. I've indoctrinated my family. My wife has beaten four to five games. She loves Final Fantasy IX. Just this afternoon, she played three hours of World of Final Fantasy with my five-year-old. And uh, I put like Final Fantasy music on to put my kids to sleep. So for years, I dreamed of a remake on PS2, PS3. And I do remember the triple whammy of that Sony E3 presser with with Shenmue 3 and The Last Guardian and Remake. And it was just this, you know, like if if the Lord Jesus had arrived in the room, I'm not sure people there could have been more excited. And everyone's like vaporware dreams came true. But because of all the compilation stuff around the, the, the noughties, I was really trepidatious because I just didn't like it at all. I really didn't like Advent Children. Um, I enjoyed a Let's Play of Crisis Core, but I never got to play it, unfortunately. But all of that extended kind of universe building seemed like a massive cash grab to me. So when this game was announced and getting closer to launch, I was really kind of a bit worried about it. I was a bit cross at the name as well, um, that it was Final Fantasy VII Remake. And yet I knew for a fact that that was going to mislead some people. And it seemed a particularly cheeky thing to call it considering it was not a remake of the original nor was it the whole story or you know equivalent but um i got over that i bought it day one i got it five days early from simply games thank you very much and it kept me uh kept me sane during those early days of of covid lockdown and um and yeah smashed through it on ps4 i didn't get a chance to replay the whole thing um ahead of the show i don't really think it's a game I want to replay anytime soon, actually, just because of the nature of it. But I did manage to beat Intermission last week on PS5, um, so which was fun. Yeah, just like a little slice of episodic content. So, um, so yeah, I've, I, my after my memories go back a year to to when I played it last year. Interesting. Okay. Uh, so uh, Brian, I think you and I both had uh, had a full replay in there. Um, for whatever reason, <laughs> but uh, you also are. You were. Were you on the the original Final Fantasy Seven no, show with us? No, I, I I was not. No. Um, I think the I was on the Final Fantasy eight, ten, and twelve show. Only even Final Fantasies oh. for me until now. Um, <laughs> they all kind of but, they all kind of blur together uh, for me. I'm not gonna lie. Um, but yeah, I was much like Tom. Uh, like I I I I uh I, I almost like had a religious fanaticism with the original game. It was just the perfect time for me. I was in high school. Um, I, mm. I just, it was one of those things where I didn't realize that they, that we needed a memory card for the PS uh, PlayStation. So I just left my PlayStation on for like three days and, you know, played through <laughs> the whole Midgar section, then lost my save and had to restart. I just, I knew that game frontwards and backwards soundtrack, everything loved it. So I was all in for the remake, but I was, I was very, very like cautiously optimistic because of the development history and just kind of wondering where they take the battle system and like, did I really want to replay a game that was just Midgar? How does this look? How does this feel? Um, so, but I was, but either way, I was going to be a day one purchase. So I ended up being a day one purchase. Um, I didn't finish my complete replay before the show. So I, I bought it day one. I was able to um, uh, play through. I think the game came out 
literally the day after I was sent home from work. Uh, so mm-hmm. it was really like that was already the world was kind of on fire. Didn't really know what was going on. And I just sunk my all of my energy into the Final Fantasy seven remake. I think I beat it over the course of less than a week, which for me is not normal with my current life schedule. So I put like 50, 60 hours into it. And I, I replayed up until Wall Market was about how far I got during my replay and didn't have time to finish it before the show. Um, but yeah, so I kind of consumed it like kind of full tilt and then um, and then went back recently to, to kind of poke at the PS5 version. And uh, yeah, I just um, it was one of those things that like like everybody was talking about. You'd hear about this. This Final Fantasy VII remake is going to come out. What's going to happen? What's going to happen? And then like just to suddenly have it there one day just as like an icon on my PS4, it just it, it was, almost felt surreal like. Like, was this thing ever going to come out? And then suddenly for it to be there and then to hear the reviews and like, what is this game actually? Is it a remake? Is it a new thing? Is it whatever? So I, I my excitement level grew more and more as I was playing through it. Yeah, I I also was a, a similar story. I did not actually play the original Final Fantasy VII right when it came out. But when I got a PS1, it was kind of my gateway into JRPGs at the time. Uh, which I, I'm pretty sure I went over on the original Final Fantasy VII show, but I'll say it again here. It was very important to me. It was never my favorite Final Fantasy. Uh, that was eight. Uh, I I really just vibed with eight in a way that nothing else had hit me. But it, Final Fantasy VII was and has been a very important one for me, and I I am absolutely not immune to the remake hype that that went on during a lot of the past decade or more uh including the ps3 as i said that 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 uh demo that they put out the video for really just kind of struck a chord and i remember when i installed i i I agree very much with what brian said about it sounding kind of about it seeming a little bit surreal uh just because i i remember when i installed it i just kind of left it on the title screen, which is a pretty simple title screen. It just has Cloud's sword kind of sticking up out of the ground there. And just like looking at that title screen and listening to the music and just thinking, I, this doesn't, how is this a thing right now? Like I just, that whole thing just kind of really hit me hard. And I probably, it was probably because, you know, as again, as Brian said, the world was kind of burning down at that point. So, uh, I just sat there. This is not something that I normally do with video games, but I just sat there for a few minutes, just kind of taking it in. It might have been a little dusty. I don't know. But it just, it, there's something about the way that they reimagined and redid this game that really struck, struck it just, it hit me in the feels, as the kids say. And, uh, and I'm, I'm really happy to have had that experience. And I'm looking forward to, uh, to discussing more about it. So, James, I've left you for last because unless something has changed, and I'm going to feel a little bit silly if it has, but you have not played the original Final Fantasy VII, or at least you had not until, uh, or you had not at the time that you played the remake. Is Am I, am I correct in saying so? Uh, no, completely wrong. I'm a huge, huge Final Fantasy fan. I've got, like, loads of tattoos. <laughs> I've got multiple children named after characters. <laughs> I, um, children, my yeah. middle name's Roche, which nobody knows, but, I mean, even before the character, <laughs> we even knew, yeah. you know. Um, that's, that's why they named the character Roche, actually. <laughs> Number one fan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, no, you're absolutely right. I um, have now played Final Fantasy VII, but uh, this 
last April was my first Final Fantasy full stop. It was the demo that kind of sold me on this. Played the demo, um, I want to say like on day of release, finally got around to playing the demo and then three days later had had took delivery of a, a copy of the game and by the 7th of June, so what, like three weeks later, had uh, got the platinum trophy on this game, having played through twice a total of like 80 hours or something to to go through all of that and to, you know, do everything, I think, pretty much. Yeah, while I don't have the nostalgia and the history and the, um, you know, the just the time with the, the game and the series that all of you do, um, yeah, I'm... I don't think it's going to be any spoiler to say I'm completely in on this uh, remake series. So we we have gotten a lot of correspondence, as expected, for this game, because a lot of people played it and a lot of people have very strong opinions about it. So I've tried to include as much from as many people as we can, and I'm going to start us off with a couple of pieces of correspondence from our forum. If you would like to get in your thoughts about games that we are covering in the future, you can go to canamrinse.com slash forum, where we always have a thread up for our next show as well as our upcoming shows in the current volume and you can uh potentially get it read out on the show and we're going to start with a piece from the emailer who says eight was my final fantasy so i didn't have the nostalgia for this game i really enjoyed it i had three major issues with the storytelling even though i like challenging the original story one having barrett come back from the dead means jeopardy is gone it's hard to feel tension if resurrection is possible two too much sephiroth in the original, he is fleeting. You mainly follow his wake and see the fallout from his actions. This makes him mysterious, enigmatic, and hella scary. But ending part one by defeating him easily breaks his appearance of imperiousness. And three, the whispers are silly and annoying. And we have another piece from Tolkien Taters who says, The writing was a mixed bag. Tifa and Barrett were memorable, well acted, and felt like complete characters. The other members of the Avalanche offshoot were uninteresting. Wedge in particular was really annoying, like Bomber from The Hobbit. Cloud was pretty boring, but maybe he gets more interesting as the story progresses. I also got really tired of the team telling Cloud how cool he was or going overboard in their praise of his ability to pull a lever. <laughs> I did love the exploration of the themes of inequity, exploitation, and the consequences of the team's actions. It wasn't subtle, but it worked for me. Like, Midgar feels like the prologue of the first game, right? Or at least the the setup. Mm. And there's a lot to it. There's a lot of things going on, and, and you could spend five to ten hours in that initial Midgar. But once you get out, like, the story's is about the planet dying, but it's it's also then it becomes about, you know, the lifeblood of the earth and 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 kind of these ancients and everything else. Like you don't spend as much time just hearing about purely Midgar, how the 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 peat the damn pizza in the sky and all that stuff. Like like here, that's the entirety of your experience is hearing about that over and over and over again. So it does just make it feel mm. like the entire experience is coded in this environmentalism and corporate control and it, it is sort of but in the other game and in, in the in the in the original game you get past that so much quicker that you just you kind of are left to bathe in it in this game and i'm not sure if that does it a service or if it does it any um hmm. or, or if it detracts from the experience but you certainly come away feeling like this game has more of a point of view i guess yeah than the, absolutely than the original game Re for for better or worse and there's two I mean, book more or less bookended. The opening cutscene really makes a point of flowers dying. You know, this this kind of urban wasteland um, of the the Midgar Undercity, and then later on, where where Barrett is at his most kind of bitter, is where the team walk into the Shinra 
propaganda suite and they watch this amazing cutscene um that's showing like how Shinra is selling its its big dreams to the world. You see that like a kind of artistic, idealized version of the ancients and they and it's a really nice bit because it does actually that cutscene kind of paints forward into future games. Um and it's beautiful and it kind of gave me more confidence that they're gonna take this kind of eco warrior story um, bigger and they're taking it taking it seriously and take, taking the threat of corporate overreach and and um uh, and pollution really really seriously so I, I i really like that aspect of the game and i think they're taking these elements from the original game mm-hmm. and they're really upgrading them and giving them more significance and i i personally really like that about you know what they what they chose to kind of emphasize from the original game and i i really like barrett in this game i know I don't know how people feel in the balance about the kind of angry Mr. T uh, stuff, both from the original and from the portrayal here. But I think he's got some range here. I think the character has range in this game. It's almost his game and and, and he will become less important later in the story, potentially. Um, So I think it's really valuable that he kind of has some some good stuff in this game and and, and does lay it out quite clearly. Yeah, he he is... He is a very central character to this, and you do I, you do spend some time without him, <clears throat> kind of exploring the relationships between some of the other characters. But given that you also have a lot more time with the other members of your group of Avalanche, you you spend more time with um, Biggs and Wedge and Jesse, who are almost throwaway characters in the original game. Like you have them for the first mission. And they kind of follow you around, but that's kind of it. Here, you get a whole subset of Jesse being extremely thirsty through the entire thing. <laughs> yeah. Um, Famished. Yeah. And, and yeah, she really is. Uh, but but I mean, she is also, you know, a a fleshed out. You, you do a side quest with her where you kind of see a little bit more about her family. You you can tell you, you see that wedge has cats and is an avid uh player of a fort contour um which really sucks cuz he's very good um <laughs> i'm i'm oh, that jerk but anyway because they have allowed themselves to expand this section they are also in turn expanding the characters themselves and allowing the audience to get more of an insight into them that was just not there in the yeah. first game. It just, uh, and you know, you, you could maybe say that they, they did this with the knowledge that, Oh, these people all have backstories. They all have lives. And, and maybe that was a thing that just didn't surface, but we have no way of knowing that because it, it wasn't there. You know, it was not part of the text, even if it was in the subtext. So I, I want to talk a little bit about um, kind of the, the different, uh scenarios and the different um environments that we find ourselves in character design uh as well fits into this uh this particular bucket i would say uh so obviously we know that midgar is a world that has already been established to a pretty significant degree uh it, they are not coming in and building a completely new world so the i i guess what i want to ask you guys is do you feel that Midgar feels in this game like a coherent place? Uh, I I think so, absolutely. Um, I really got that feeling. I think it was the first time you get back to the Sector Seven slums. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
Like you it, look up. it felt like a world. It felt like a thing. It felt like it felt like the city that I was imagining in my head in 1997, whatever it was. Um, like just looking, like you know, kind of seeing the the staircases up to the plate and, and thinking about in my mind. Oh, that must go to here or there. And then in this game, you can look and you can see that. You can like, you really get the sense of like the scale of it. Like, but not much of it was left to the imagination the way that it was, you know, 25 years ago or whatever it was. Um, yeah, I think they did a wonderful job of imagining Midgar. And, and even to the point, like, from a grand sense, um, I think it feels like one cohesive place, but I also think they did a good job of making it feel like there were neighborhoods and each kind of slum had its own little personality or, like, um, or even just, like, Wall Market, like, like being that that seedy kind of, you know, red light district, for lack of a better term, area of... It's just... I think all of it really meshes together, and it does feel like it's all connected in an appropriate way. Yeah, the the scale thing is is one of the big points that I wanted to hit because it was something that really struck me, in particular this time around. Just and they they do this in a couple of places. Like I know that by and large, a lot of what you're of what is giving me this feeling is just skyboxes. Like I know that <laughs> in my mind, but they're really good skyboxes. Oh, yeah. is the thing. Um, but the first time that I really that I really had this thought, like oh my god, this scale is great, was when you are climbing around in the second reactor and you know, you can kind of look down on what's below you and you can see the slums in kind of the, um, you know, there's kind of a construction, sort of construction areas or um, like scaffolding almost that you're climbing through. And they, they pull the same basic kind of trick a couple of times, but I, th- it really worked on me. Like I, I, I really thought that even though all I'm doing is crawling across a plank from one section to another <laughs> very high up on a reactor like i mean all that is below me is you know it's not really that if i fall i'm gonna fall all the way down there but it but it felt like that to me i i really i was impressed by how they were able to kind of pull that reaction out of me personally so yeah, let's let's talk specifically about the character design a little bit more. Um, again, much like Midgar itself, they are not starting from scratch here, uh, with the exception of a few characters who were not featured in the original game. I'm looking at you, Roche, and that's what happens when they <laughs> let them design new characters. And Chadley. Uh, Ch- and Chadley, yes. <laughs> I'm trying to forget about Chadley, but um, <laughs> I, <laughs> but in particular for the uh the characters that are coming from the original Final Fantasy 7 uh they didn't do a whole lot of trying to make them look more realistic in their design in my opinion uh, i mean they still are recognized and what i mean by that is that they are still very recognizably the same characters with many of the same character traits that they had in the original. So I, I'd like mm. to hear about how you guys feel about that. James, let's, um, if you have any thoughts on this, um, uh, yeah. given yeah. that you played the original mm. prior, or I'm sorry, the original after the, uh, the remake, um, I'm, I'm curious to hear about that. So, I, yeah, I guess my feeling on it is it's a huge leap if you imagine that they started with the sprites from Final Fantasy VII and ended up with these characters. 
But as we saw, not just from the E3 2005 demo, but from every other piece of media and everything else that's going on around Final Fantasy VII, whether it's films, whether it's other side games and, and you know, uh, that sort of stuff, they have kind of fleshed out these characters well beyond, certainly, and the sprites were not the only thing in 1997 as reference material. Obviously, there was um, the cutscenes that were there and there was art surrounding the game and the, you know, production. So they had ideas clearly in 1997 of what these characters looked like, whether or not in game on screen they could actually render that in in such detail but but so yeah i think it wasn't a huge surprise to me to see all of the buckles and the ridiculous size of the buster sword and stuff like that <laughs> be the way it is because it it was never just going from sprites to this which would be a, just a huge leap of how how did they think this was what that character should look like but that's already all been fleshed out and was there originally as well. They're gorgeous. Yeah. They're really, 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 really good-looking people. Yeah. I mean, Aerith's face is just so gorgeous and Tifa's gorgeous and Cloud's gorgeous and Barrett's gorgeous. They're just... Tseng, when he comes in, he's gorgeous. They're just all really, really good-looking and appealing people, uh, I think. Red 13, let's test- not forget the most important yeah, of course, character. he's gorgeous too. That, yeah, that, that's- seriously. Tess, Hojo is not gorgeous, but he's not supposed to be. The, the original character designs, you know, it was a time where the silhouettes mattered and to have yeah. these really distinct cast of characters was really important. It's what people fell in love with the game. And yes, they do. They preserve that. But the actual, like, the hair and the eyes, the eyes, the way they animate the eyes in cutscenes, they're glassy and they're wet when they need to be and they... They're empathetic, and, and there's just so much visual detail. It's, it's engine tech if... demo levels of... Yeah, I mean, Almost I wonder if it's something yeah, to do it's... with the stability of Unreal 4 by this point. The fact that they're working on characters that they have detailed yeah. previous models of and everything. That they're just able to elevate that, but only with the kind of core cast. Um, and I think they really do a good job with Charlie Sheen. Sorry, Biggs and um, Jesse as well. Wedge, uh, the, the the big guy, less so, he's, he's got a weird Wedge is a but... bit more of a caricature of a... a in appearance and character anyway, isn't he? It's the fact that it's not just here is an eye, it's the pores and the ducts and the imperfections as well. Like when you look at someone's eye, it's never pure blue or pure, you know, green or brown or whatever it is. There's there's detail there that you would have to call an imperfection. And that's, it feels mm. like that's what's gone into these character designs as well. So of course, with the with regard to the characters, uh, they would not be complete in this game if we didn't talk about their vocal performances as well. And something that I found to be really kind of fascinating, actually, is that of the main cast, most of their vo- voice actors, in English at least, they really haven't done much other uh, video game voice acting. These are, you know, you. You do not have um, any, um, like, as far as I know, Troy Baker and Nolan North are not in this game. Or, <laughs> or if they are. Yeah. Yeah, or no, no, you're. And I mean, these are. And, and the reason that I bring that up is because they're still really good. Like, I, I don't, yeah. I don't think that they're. I, and I don't even want to say lack of experience because I'm sure that they have worked extremely hard uh, to be to be even considered for this stuff. But I felt like, despite not not immediately knowing their names, 
I was very impressed by the voice acting, which could have been pretty bad. There are some pretty bad voice acting uh, lines in, in Final Fantasy adjacent projects mm -hmm. that, uh, oh boy, sometimes they are not, they are not what you want. But I, I can't think of a particular, I mean, maybe some of the, like, just throwaway lines by incidental characters, like the, the, um, the kind of just dialogue that you hear as you're walking through the streets or anything like that. Maybe some of those could have, but like Cloud, Tifa, Aerith, Barrett, Sephiroth, they are all just, I, I felt like their voices fit them. Yeah. Tifa's wonderful. I mean, I just love her in this game and the performance, especially. Aerith is a good performance because it matches the character. But I personally, I just, I think it's too, I just, yeah, some of the scenes with her, especially with Marlene, they're really like floaty and anime. And I guess that's just not the vibe that I enjoy uh, or, or particularly convinced by with with characters. That's that's a me thing rather than a performance thing. But um, but but Jesse as well, Jesse and Tifa, for me particularly, really, really stood out as just very empathetic and, and really well done. Unfortunately, yeah. I really kind of want to go back and play a couple of these games because I play Yakuza Like a Dragon, which Barrett's voice actor did uh, Yosuke in, and, um, mm -hmm. and also Persona 5. But I play all those games in Japanese, so I've never heard the American <laughs> uh, voice acting. But I will say that I think the voice acting in this game was great. I know that our correspondent earlier didn't particularly didn't like the voice acting performance of Wedge, um, but I really enjoyed uh, Wedge's voice acting. I don't think I found the character grading at times, but I found the voice acting to be quite good. Um, Matt Jones, he was um he was a character on the show Breaking Bad. Badger was the character he played on Breaking Bad. He's very, oh, very yeah. good. Um, okay. Yeah, he, yeah, he was great um in that, and I and I really did like him his performance in this. While Wedge himself could be a bit much, like especially in like the <laughs> skydiving scenes or the the rope climbing. You know, they, there's like there's stuff with Wedge that is a little overwrought. He's intentionally the comic relief, exactly. right? Like, um, but yeah, but no, I really I I didn't have any problems, which is like. Maybe this, maybe I'm giving myself too much credit or too little credit. I'm not sure, but like, I'm precious about a lot of these characters, like to a point that even annoys me. You know, like <laughs> like some of these characters I have emotional connections to, and I love them. And sure. Like especially Red Thirteen. I'm like, if I hear Red Thirteen talk, I know that we're not gonna be able to play with Red Thirteen, like Control. But if I hear Red Thirteen talk, and it doesn't convey this wise old sage while still being a kid, you know, type of thing, <laughs> and it just hit it, and I was like, mm. wow, like it just. The, I mean, it, the writing is great, isn't it? It really yeah. helps. It really helps that there's some brilliant one-liners. Barrett's got some killer stuff. Um, I think the the it's worth mentioning the the possibly the weak link is is President Shinra, and I know it's the I don't know his name, the actor that plays Skullface in Metal Gear Solid Five, which I know that another uh, member of Kane and Rince really really dislikes that actor and the performances he gives across video games. Um, and I was thinking about that here because I could because when President Shinra gives his monologues, they're they're not quite right. They don't kind of respond to the situation. They're just kind of like evil and like consistently evil. But they don't. But whereas some of these other characters are really rolling with the action, with the emotion, with the other characters. That's one performance for me that that all around the dialogue and the performance and that everything didn't just, just felt a bit detached for me. I think the thing that surprised me most is, Leah, as you said, not seemingly a lot of video game experience here. And the dialogue, I think, is generally 
great, but some of those one-liners could be easy places to trip up a voice actor who's not, uh, you know, on the ball or being right. directed correctly, etc. It's not easy. Some of these are cheesy one-liners, and they're intentionally cheesy, and that's, you know, to, to speak to your point, Brian, about Wedge, that would have been, yes, the character's meant to be, like, annoying in places. Mm-hmm. That would have been really easy for that to fail under the weight of, of voice acting that wasn't up to scratch. And I never felt that here. Like I was right. definitely rolling my eyes at some of the one-liners and thinking this is so OTT, especially <laughs> early on um, be- between uh, Biggs, Wedge, and Jesse because you spend so much time with them and Cloud is such a counterpoint to those three characters. He's right. so uh, sort of super serious and, and uh, sort of closed down emotionally. And all of that could have been a recipe for disaster, like like lines that just didn't sit well next to one another, etc. And that's not really how I ended up feeling about this at all. I think the voice acting mm. and worked with the script that could have been difficult. Mm. There's kind of a combination of factors for me with Cloud in particular. Um, he he has the especially this early in the story of Final Fantasy VII, Cloud is not really the one who is undergoing a lot of personal change. Yeah. And he has, because of that, the propensity to be, to kind of come off as like a very flat character. Yeah, very one. And we have, yeah, and we've had a a bit of correspondence speaking to that already, and I I believe there's a a bit more uh, later, but he, in this particular portrayal, I think that they managed to kind of uh, get around that a little bit because he seems more like, he seems less like he is genuinely this just completely closed off, uh, you know, just straight faced all the time, mercenary with no feelings, just give me your money. Like you can, you can kind of see, and when I say this is kind of a, a combination of factors, what I mean is it's in the animation, it's in the writing, and it's also in the vocal performance that there's a bit more to it than that. Like, maybe this is just kind of a facade that he is putting up, at uh, least in yeah. part. I think what I will say as far as the character being uh, one note, I think the, the difficulty is that given you can see that in this game they are hinting at character growth to come, and both Tifa and Aerith, and the other characters around him are asking him to grow quicker than he is clearly supposed to be capable of. That's very different in seven hours versus 50. 50 yeah, I mean, is a long yeah. time to think, Cloud, you really should have, you know, <laughs> you really should have sorted this out now. You can see that people around you need to change. You clearly have the capacity to do so. There's enough hints there, as you mentioned, Leah, that that you can do this, and now you're not, that just seems like you're being stubborn to the point of being stubborn. Uh, whereas in, in seven hours, even though it covers the same period of time in, in the in-game chronology, it it feels like a long time to sit with a character that doesn't seem to be changing as quickly as maybe they should. Yeah, I mean, these, these characters have all got their own stuff going on, haven't they, though? They only yeah, oh, just... Because yeah. Barrett's got his eco-mission, Tifa's got that, but then she's pulled between... You know, she sees Cloud and that sort of messes things up in her head and she doesn't necessarily want to avalanche to be this violent as violent group. Aerith's got her own stuff going on, Red 13 and so on. So, you know, it does kind of make sense that it's just a bit messy. Uh, They're not all focused on Cloud willing him to become the single saviour 
in this situation. Everybody's got stuff going on. Um, I think Aerith's again is the is the weakest for me of that. Like her, the stuff when it's her, I I just find it cheesy, basically just unbearably cheesy in some parts. But everyone else, uh, uh, she's great in, in other scenes as well. But 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 yeah, they've all got stuff going on character wise, so it does kind of make sense. I think they they handle that well. See, I, I really like is- that Aerith feels like she's not from a different game, but she is living a, in a different world to almost yeah. everybody else we meet in the game. That's kind mm. of the point, especially as we go through this and learn that she gets more than any other character, perhaps aside from Sephiroth, I suppose, that, that there are that there is only so much she can reveal to people around her. She knows a lot about what's going on, I think. That's my takeaway from this game. Yeah. She has a really good perception of what the the player is realizing over the course of this game. In the original Final Fantasy VII, I didn't actually like Aerith that much. I understood that she was important to the plot, and, you know, she... I, I just kind of felt that that portrayal of her was kind of this manic pixie dream girl thing that, for me, and I, and I don't think that this was entirely the game. I think this is probably a reflection on just me as well. But in this interpretation of her i actually found myself a lot more amenable to Aerith. like i really love her relationship with tifa which is not something that you get in the original game uh you you really just don't at all it's not like they you know are opposed to each other it's just that they don't really interact you know they they don't have any kind of um friendship really that you that you get any kind of depth with and here they do you get a couple of sections even with just them walking around but they they just kind of seem to take to each other and and it's not all about cloud you know it it is it is partially about them being friends with each other which is kind of great you know and mm. and i Aerith seems to me i i felt that this was more effective and the vocal performance like i said is a huge part of this I felt that it was more effective as establishing Aerith as this person who knows that they have a very heavy responsibility, knows that there is a lot resting on them and not necessarily wanting to drag their friends down with them, but covering that up with kind of this facade of, oh, I'm this, you know, adorable, quirky, um, person who you know you will like because i i'm just a real sweetheart i think that she comes off better for me if anything in in this interpretation than she did in the original i want to talk about the music and i mentioned in kind of the uh the the lead up to this that most of this is not strictly original music a lot of it is most of it in fact is interpretations it's reimaginings it's adaptations it's remixes uh but it is inspired by at the very least the original soundtrack uh with the exception of the track that we talked about by uematsu that plays over the end credits um called hollow so i this is for me kind of a um an offshoot of updating the game that a lot of a us on this panel and be the people who would have picked up this game and really dove into it right off the bat a lot of that nostalgia 
you, you can't just put the same thing in front of people. Well, you could, but I, I, in my opinion, it probably would not be as effective as making it kind of stand out like it does in your mind. Like a, you, you don't think when you think back to, or at least I don't, when I think back to the original Final Fantasy VII, what I'm not, what I'm seeing in my head is not necessarily just the blocky characters strutting around. So you kind of have to make the updated version of something match with what is in your head when you have that nostalgia filter over it. So my broad question is to you all, do you think that the music pulls that off? And sub question, if you didn't have a background, this is more directed towards James, if you didn't have as much of a background with the original music, is this effective as a score on its own? It's it's just that so the approach they took to the game was just to do everything it was just like there's diegetic radio covers of all different genres including hip-hop jazz electronica dance music heavy rock and then there's orchestral rock and orchestral pieces and electronic music from uh, uh from suzuki and uh, there's just there's just everything they just there's like 500 people working on this soundtrack they they were like should we do some cover stuff yep and let's do some new arrangements and let's do remixes and there's there's like two three hours i guess of brand new music as well um of varying quality so they just threw the kitchen sink at it and they used loads of music from later in the original game as well and brought it in really early the best example is the the world map theme which comes in, in in Sector 7, which gives you that super nostalgia punch, doesn't it? Where you're looking up at the plate and then that familiar melody is playing with a, a quite nice kind of um, or- orchestral version of it. Um, but, the, but the result of having all of these people working on the soundtrack and, and shout out to Sh- Shotaro Shima, who's one of the best rearrangers of Uematsu stuff here. He does a beautiful job, fantastic job, is that there's it's a bit kitchen sink. It's a bit like like the game that there's this tone that that flies all over the place from deadly serious to completely kitsch and jokey uh, and with hip hop de chocobo and, and stuff like that so it's kind of i can't and the soundtrack's like 9 hours long or whatever it's just sort of everything you know and and yeah it's it's almost too much to take in i yeah it is a lot to to kind of process as a as a fan of the original soundtrack um it's taken me months to just like work out what the heck is going on i think it's um interesting the way that they chose to include tracks from locations that don't exist in this game but existed in the original game and make remixes of those and then make them available only to you via buying them from vending machines or from uh <laughs> or from finding them in the world um like the Costa del Sol remix, I think is really good, but also Costa del Sol is not a place in this game, so yeah. it's it's very interesting how they chose to do that. Very fan servicey, and I like that for me personally. But I could also see somebody who coming to this by itself and being like, "Wait, what is what's going on here?" Um, yeah, it does. Like I agree with Tom. It does feel kind of like they threw everything at the wall. Uh, but when those themes hit at the right moments, they they really would get a reaction from me to the point where I'd put down the controller and just listen. You know, um. Sector Six Slums is a great example. Aerith seemed first time, first time you go to her house and are in the, are in the flower garden, and it, there's just moments that are just wonderful. But they're wonderful to me because they are absolutely tied to nostalgia. I think I think when it 
when it really matters, they absolutely like nail it, both in terms of nostalgia and just general execution. All right. So we have talked a little bit about the characters already, but I want to go back in and, uh, and give us an opportunity to call out anything that we, uh, that we really want to, to nail down about them. And I want to lead us in with a post from uh, Necromos from the forum who says, One thing that really stood out for me playing this was just how well they managed to bring the characters to life. The animation in particular goes a long way to giving subtle depth to the character interactions through wonderful use of facial expressions and body language. Cloud in particular does a really good job of getting across that he is actually quite awkward and immature behind the badass soldier persona he tries to present. So the main cast of playable characters, there are uh, four main playable characters. There is Cloud Strife, Tifa Lockhart, Aerith Gainsborough, and Barrett Wallace. Um, you also have uh, guest characters who are along with you and uh, a whole truckload of NPCs and bad guys. Um, so uh, anybody have particular things to say about the main cast? Red 13. Uh, I, I knew I yes. wasn't going to get to play as Red 13, as, as Brian said earlier. So disappointing. He was always in my party uh, in the original. Yeah. He was, yeah, he was one of my mainstays. And for sure. If in the future we get to pick, I'm not sure we will get to pick sort of encounter by encounter who's in the party. You know, this time around it was pretty mm -hmm. much predetermined. But yeah, Red 13 would never budge from my party. I just want that character to be on screen as much as possible. Oh, he's so great. I love yeah. him. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So um, the NPCs that we encounter as uh, as kind of the the villains or the antagonists uh, are pretty varied. Actually, I, I've included a list in our show notes, and that's far from everybody. Like there are a, a ton of other characters that we meet, um, but. One of the notable things, and this is going to be one of those I don't want to talk too much about the original, but um, you see Sephiroth, who, as we have noted, is kind of one of those characters who, even if you haven't played Final Fantasy VII at all, you have probably encountered, you, you would probably still recognize Sephiroth. You know, he's, he's in Smash. One of the proto what yes, he <laughs> is in Smash. He's one of the, the prototypical um, long haired big sworded pretty guys um who <laughs> sometimes has a wing sometimes doesn't have a wing but yeah you see him an awful lot earlier than you would um in a normal playthrough air quotes normal playthrough of uh final fantasy 7 and I, I mean i'm sure that that is probably because people would be expecting it because he is such a huge part of uh, of the storyline and of kind of what you think of when you think of Final Fantasy VII. If you went through this whole first section and no Sephiroth, then I I can only imagine that Square might have thought, yeah, I don't know. I, I It might turn people off if they don't see him yet. Maybe they won't come back for the second one. Um, but we do have a piece of correspondence that I uh, thought was extremely appropriate, given that the username of the person who posted this is Seth. Uh, so I, I wanted to put this here. Um, they say, I still think the inclusion of Sephiroth this early is a misstep, as the original did a fantastic job of building him up before his appearance. And the mystique is one of the big reasons for him being my favorite character, hence the username. The escape from captivity in the Shinra building is a good example of his poor usage, as the original had so much mystery and horror in this section without ever showing him on screen, whereas Remake has him turn up to spout a bunch of nonsense before another death fake-out scene. Yeah, um, there's, uh, it's, it's pretty cool when you just find President Shinra with a sword sticking out of his back. 
um, which is not exactly what happens here. Right. Um, so I, I did want to focus in on Sephiroth in particular a little bit. Uh, is it too early for him? What do you guys think? I think that it, like, it worked really, really well. Mm-hmm. And I think Ooh. that maybe just for me, but when I saw Sephiroth that early, it instantly broke my illusion that this was just a strict remake. Like, yeah. oh, here's Sephiroth. This is going to be really different. And so I set my, my expectations change accordingly. And you see Sephiroth, like, in the prologue, like, getting off the train. You're see, I mean, you see him, you walk through an alley, and all of a sudden you have this, like, conversation out loud with Sephiroth. Like, it's crazy how early you see him just after the first Mako reactor mission. And from that moment on, because that first Mako reactor mission is pretty, I mean, it's pretty, like, at least narrative frame exactly like the original game. And then you get that, and it just kind of threw my whole expectation on tilt. So, yeah, I think it was effective for that reason. What it presents is a different type of mystery. Like, as I mentioned before, I'd not played the original game. I still knew Sephiroth was the bad guy from this game. So this mystery of, oh, why is this katana sticking out? Some Well, Sephiroth. Even <laughs> if no one had said the name, that would have been my response by that point at the end of relatively near the end of this game. So you you can't you can't do that. Like there would be a nostalgic satisfaction obviously for all of you getting to the point of oh I know he's coming this is the point of the game he should be and that would have been a really nice build up to experience but there is no mystery around even if uh, you know they built up you know they know the name Sephiroth you know, the the characters mentioned, even if, you know, they'd got to the point of saying, well, clearly this is who's doing it, but you don't see him. There's, those are all types of mysteries you can get away with for the first iteration of this game, but this time around, you can't. And if, if they're not doing a straightforward retelling, change the mystery. The mystery is, mm. why is Sephiroth appearing here? It, it also leads into, for me, okay, there's something between Cloud and Sephiroth that obviously now I know what the, the background and the history there is. So it makes sense that Cloud may see visions of Sephiroth because of their history, but also what Sephiroth is doing and saying lets us know very early on, as Brian said, something's wrong here. Aerith, we see it from her perspective that something's wrong, but she's not ready to reveal that yet, so we need somewhere else to see that. The Wisps are, the whispers, sorry, are one thing, and we see Aerith interact with that, and then we see other people being able to see them as well. But Sephiroth is the other place you can show that, because, you know, most arguably most powerful character maybe next to Aerith, certainly in this game that we see, will should have a good handle that something's wrong here and working out what his goal here is, why he's potentially choosing to reveal himself um, in ways that didn't happen in the original game. That's that's an interesting mystery to, to try and work mm. out and unpick through the course of this game and still hasn't yet really been answered all that well by the end of this game. Um, so, no, I really liked that it left me with questions. Before we actually start talking about the uh, the gameplay and the storyline, um, just to flesh out what we've already said, uh, I want to open it up to you all to talk about any other characters that have not gotten a mention yet uh, that you that had a big impact on you or that you, you just want to bring up here. Um, the one, uh, well, I guess it's a group uh that i will mention here would be uh the turks reno rude and Mm -hmm. sung um they are missing uh notably elena who was the third member of the turks in the original final fantasy 7 and she's just not here uh 
I think that's fine. I, I don't, I, I didn't really miss her because I didn't think she was that integral a character. It's just a little interesting that they decided to cut her. She, um, she doesn't show she up in Midgar in the original game, does, uh, does she? No, no, she I don't doesn't. know. No. Uh, I can't remember. She turns up later after Midgar in the original game, so I'd expect her to be in the next, the next game. Okay, well, uh, in that case, then maybe we will see her later on, and yeah. I've broken my own rule by saying there's another character coming here. Uh, I guess that maybe speaks a little bit to why I didn't really remember that she wasn't here. Um, yeah, because she's, she's like a, a, tra- a trainee later in the game, effectively, and there's mm. like all the, yeah. all the sort of just, back and I forth. I thought she was there from the beginning, but... I, I really was interested to see what they did with Reno and Rude, like building out these characters, and I, th- I think they did a pretty good job. Uh, by them, I, th- I fought. I felt like their boss fights or mini boss fights or however you want to call them interactions throughout the game were were some of the more captivating combat sequences. Which I know we're going to talk about combat in a minute. Um, but uh, but yeah, uh, I think they were really good. I was really I was really interested to see how the game handled Don Corneo. Um, just yeah, because that's the other one was, I wanted to hear about. He was like essentially. I mean, it still is in this game in a lot of ways, but I mean, he was essentially not even, I wouldn't even say a sexual deviant as much of a, a sexual predator in the, in the original mm-hmm. game. And I was kind of wondering like, what does Don Corneo look like in, in 2019's or 2020's Final Fantasy? And I think they did a pretty good job of making him acceptably dislikable and skeezy and like that in the exact way that I kind of felt about him in the, um, original game without having as much of like the kind of dungeon stuff that kind of exists in the first game. Does that make sense? I mean, he, spoilers. Um, yeah, still a sexual he, so predator. So for me, he. Oh, he, no, definitely. <laughs> yeah. Is. Oh, yeah. No, but, that's what I was gonna uh, say. Like, yeah. He in this game, for me, he feels more threatening. Like mm-hmm. he was almost a comedic character in the original, and yes, here exactly. Like, I mean, he's still he's still a little like over the top and kind of goofy in some ways, but he like I I I feel very uncomfortable with yes. him and that's that's a good thing in this case because you're supposed to. Like he yeah, has this one yeah. line that always just makes my skin crawl, and it's when he has uh Tifa and Aerith and Cloud in there and he makes some comment about um breaking her in and like yeah. Oh, just I just I I don't want any part of this. Like he is. Yeah. He's awful, and uh, and so they they really nailed that. <laughs> In the original, like he was literally the cartoon equivalent of like the wolf howling with like the jaw hitting the yeah. floor and a tongue rolling out of the mouth. Like he gets on his desk at one point on all fours and starts like like you know begging like a dog basically. In the original game, and you're right, it was like adding this comedic element to this very serious and dark and gross character and that's and I feel like they did better at that in this game at portraying him as kind of this like real disgusting underhanded person like he did but also with that element of danger like you said very threatening so I think I think Corneo was very effective in this game um and un, and kind of a, a an an effective cap to that whole wall market section um, but aside from that, other than saying that I hate Chadley, which I am on record on being multiple in multiple oh, places, this yeah. point, we both are. <laughs> um, other than that, um, it's it's I a new like, insult, isn't it? 
God, you're yeah. such a ta- you're such a Chadley. Yes, yeah, <laughs> little robot boy with his. Uh, anyway, um, with so, adult monocle voice. in his shorts. I, I really yes. like Chadley. What's wrong with Chadley? Soft garters. <laughs> oh, my. oh god. Uh, I've got a get lot out. of get out. <laughs> well, it's it's the prop that that. So in intermission, and I, I won't spoil anything. There's an extra character, Sonon, and there's a couple of extra characters. Sonon's this sort of new main character. When I think about him, I think about Leslie. It's less so Roche. Kyrie and Chadley I just think that the quality of additional characters here pale in comparison to the you know just the diver- diversity and distinctness of the original cast like these Kyrie and Roche slightly less so because they're so over the top and they're so hammy but there's there's other new characters here and an intermission that are, they just don't hit the mark um, and it feels like they're so unlike they're so unlikable compared to the sort of original cast and the even the enemy even the the bad guys in this you know Scarlet and and Palmer and, and Heidegger they do a good job of of kind of making them fun and you know at the very least fun and cheesy in a in a satisfying well, Scarlet way. gets a mech in the DLC so y'all should probably play that part at least and I love that bit in the Shinra Tower when they kind of introduce them a little bit. Um, because for fans of the original game, that is a really kind of rich with nostalgia and tells you a lot about what they're going to do with those characters, those big kind of mini boss characters in, in future games. You can imagine Scarlet or, or Heidegger being a final boss or, or nearly final boss in, in future parts of this this massive series. So one of the main ways that you will encounter your party members, especially the main party members, uh, is, of course, through combat and through the dungeons that you process your your way through on, on your way to the end of the game. Um, so I've got a couple of pieces of correspondence here to lead us in. This one is from Raisin B-Man, who says, The game doesn't tell you how to use linked materia. I was using the elemental materia wrong for like three chapters. I didn't really adjust what I was doing until I encountered enemies that didn't seem to die unless I elementally attacked them. And this sort of gets into the eternal RPG problem. How was I supposed to know I needed to bring a toothbrush into this battle? I suppose I could unequip the materia I want to use and make sure between my party I've got elemental weaknesses covered. I'm increasingly finding problems with the camera and aerial combat, both separate and together. They task you to fight air enemies actually really early on, but unlike Kingdom Hearts, there's no jump button. You just sort of have to nudge your character and hope they attack aerial characters. This is compounded by the fact that you don't get magic until later on, and even then, it's a premium resource. I think a lot of my issues with the game would be solved by them moving the camera back ever so slightly. The battle director is actually from Kingdom Hearts, so the similarities are very, very present, to the point it seems like Kingdom Hearts enemies are Final Fantasy VII enemies. Actually, it's vice versa, but yeah. Uh, and T-Bone254 says, There are probably a countless number of internet forums and discussions over what a Final Fantasy VII remake combat system should be, with those arguing for the removal of the turn-based combat and those arguing to the contrary. Square Enix ended up taking the path of least resistance and tried to appease both sides by merging both an action game and ATB turn-based system. This just didn't work for me. While I think the system they created is competent enough, I don't think it does anything all that well. Both distinct parts are mediocre at best. The action elements aren't really all that complex. It just devolves into button mashing. And as a result, the ATV system is supposed it is supposed to support suffers because of it. I would have preferred the developers pick a side and create an excellent system to support that decision. 
So we've got the combat, and we've got what kind of uh, lays behind the combat, uh, i.e. the weapons, the upgrades, the materia, uh, and your uh, in-combat summons, limit breaks, uh, battle. Uh, we briefly mentioned previously that you can either have a completely turn-based, well, almost completely turn-based system, or you can kind of go... Um, in the other direction and the uh the more default way to play i would say is the kind of hybrid of action and turn-based so um what is our feeling on whether this was effective did you like playing it did anybody actually play the um the turn-based the more turn-based system yeah. uh and uh how did you feel about the combat in general i I didn't ever play with a turn-based system. I really, really like the action combat in this game. Um, I, I think it's <laughs> deep on a level that other games uh, in the genre are not. Um, I, I think of it as kind of in Final Fantasy XV, uh, which is a game I actually liked, um, it they is, was kind of their first attempt at really making this a thing, and I think they learned a lot of lessons from that, and you can feel those lessons being learned in real time as you play this game. Um the targeting system, the way that you can kind of combo things together, but also pause battle to use your magic, to use your abilities, to use your limits, um, summons, and, and what have you. I I really think this strikes a nice balance and kind of, for me personally, and what I like, has set kind of the standard for me of what I kind of, what I want from a, from a, 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 a an RPG moving forward. Um it's not to say that I wouldn't go back to a turn-based game. I love turn-based games, but this game to me feels like it would have suffered greatly without this particular battle system. It's not without its problems. I found switching between characters to be kind of tedious, especially things like maybe healing items or, or, or resurrecting. Like Things would just take a little bit too long. Like I felt like um, some of the delays between cooldowns and abilities were, were maybe could have used some fine-tuning, but that's really just me nitpicking because um, overall I think it's I think it's very well done. To clarify, um, you need an ATB charge uh, to do pretty much anything aside yeah. from just really basic attacks. So if you're going to use an item, you need an ATB charge. If you're going to use a magic spell, you need an ATB charge. If you're going to do an ability, uh, which you can either learn from having a specific uh, weapon equipped or uh, I think you get one that's more or less innate. It's it's uh, tied to a, a weapon, but you've already learned it by default. Uh, if you want to do one of those, you need an ATB charge. So it's it encourages kind of paying attention to how this this is not a new system, right? It's new to Final Fantasy VII, but it is not new to JRPGs in general. Um, but yeah, I I actually agree with you, Brian. I I was pretty pleased with how well they pulled this off it i i did not get find myself getting frustrated um in battles because i couldn't do what i wanted i i felt that it it struck a pretty decent balance between letting you do whatever and uh making you kind of wait for uh, some of the more powerful stuff to happen i i have quite mixed feelings on the whole thing the it's a lot better than final fantasy 15 and i think that game at its worst is where there's a boss where I, I I like can't die. I'm onto my last guy. Everyone's dead, and I'm just like trying to scrape together just enough actions to like cheese the boss. So this is already better for me than that whole game in terms of action combat. 
But I feel like there's two levels like this. And you could say that some of the best video games are like this. And it's a bit like God of War 2018, actually reminds you. There's like the just sort of getting through level that you're, you're, you're okay. You quite like the gameplay. You're using the abilities you think and, and equipping your characters in such a way to get through. And there's a couple of rude awakening fights in this game, aren't there? That, that where the, there's a boss fight that requires a very specific thing that you need to do that you suddenly have to learn to master a little bit of the battle system a bit better. I'm thinking like Hell House, um, I think the first Reno, Reno fight, maybe the later Rufus fight. And then there's a mastery level where people get to playing hard on, uh, and they really love the depth of this combat. They know how to use all of the kind of the triangle abilities of all the different characters. And I never felt like I really am going to play this game enough to get to the mastery level. It does look fun for people who get there. But there are certain fights, even on normal difficulty and normal mode, where you are suddenly, even if you've been coasting a little bit, you're suddenly, you know, hurt. You really can't get past the fight unless you think more carefully about it. But I don't feel like the game teaches you well enough. And also it has that action game problem that I found with God of War and actually a lot of the Sony games where you unlock new combos is that I just forget to use them. So I'll look at a materia and it will say a, like parry or whatever materia is that has a specific action with a specific button combo. And I just know I'm not going to remember to use it. It seems really useful, but I'm not going to remember to use it in combat. Whereas the people who are going to achieve mastery and play this game on hard and really have to learn the system are going to be very specific about using those abilities. So so for that reason, it feels like I, I was never quite in complete control and it feels like I'm playing it wrong a little bit. But I still beat the game. And I still enjoyed it overall, I think. So it's just those odd boss battles where they're trying to teach you a lesson. I don't feel like they're actually teaching me how to learn the lesson, if that makes any sense. I think I agree with that pretty much, Thomas, except that I absolutely loved the combat system. It's hands down. Like I said, when I played the demo, it was the thing that intrigued me most and made me think, yeah, I'm going to give this a try. Aside from the production values and everything, which were just uh, you know astounding, um, but I definitely uh, can can um, sympathise with uh, the the two people we've just heard from from the forums, sort of saying, and Thomas saying, you know, it doesn't necessarily teach you. It it doesn't. I found myself early on in the game kind of mashing a bit and forgetting to use abilities when they were when I had a charge and they were there to use, and not always using the limit breaks like uh, smartly uh, because. If you catch a limit break at the wrong time and it, it plays, you know, it, it interrupts that for a, a cutscene or something, you, you just lose it. So you you need to be on top of that stuff. And I found that over the course of playing through the game twice, once on normal and then once on hard, I did learn over time. But I definitely encountered a couple of the difficulty spikes that, Thomas, you mentioned. Um, and it was a case of, right, for me at least, right. I need to make sure I'm not mashing. I need to know what my combos are because your combos are what help you build meter and what help you manage the the enemy you're fighting, particularly in boss fights, until your charges, until your next use of whatever ability it is you want to use is ready to go. And so you need, by the time you're playing on hard and some of the, the, the um, hard mode uh, VR fights that, the unlock in that in that difficulty you need like fully upgraded the right materia and multiple stacks of different materia on characters so 
you have to have gone and bought slash found slash farmed the right materia to get it up to the right level. You want to make sure you've got all like all the weapon abilities you want unlocked and the weapon for each character that you want on there. And you need to have you know chosen the moves that you want for that character set and shortcuts and stuff. But I found that over the course of 80 hours, it did lead me on a pretty nice curve towards feeling like by the end of it, yeah, that this... I My fear is, how do they start off the next game keeping the hmm. challenge at the level that I, I would want it, having spent this time and, and really got dialed in, I feel, on the combat, more so than most action games, because I don't tend to consider myself terribly good at those. Um, and how do they do that without stripping away abilities and materia and weapons and everything all over again? And I'll gladly level back up, but I kind of want to start a bit further on than that. So I'll be really interested to see how they do that in the next game. Because hard mode's not unlocked on this one, is it? Uh, it might not until you've completed the uh, yeah. the game. I guess it, it so, might so be on the you, PS5. Would you play hard mode for for part two? Do you, would you start on hard mode? Do you think? Uh, you, I I could not play hard mode without materia that was already upgraded and without having unlocked certain abilities and got hold right, of certain okay, weapons. So yeah. for me, it was a progression. It wasn't just about mastery of the systems. It was about having spent the time and didn't need to grind much until I was getting into hard mode and getting towards some of the more difficult fights. And I just wanted to get like up to max level on everything I could. And at that point, yeah, you go into Shinra HQ, the early levels where you're fighting the, the soldier class enemies and you can get a lot of XP back from that and a lot of leveling up of material and stuff. We mentioned that uh, you, we've mentioned this a couple of times, actually, that you, um, do not actually have a choice in your party in this game. Your party is predetermined, so you... And it, it feels right to me. I kind of mm. like that, because you get to experience combinations of characters. They are very good about giving you kind of different uh, configurations of people. You only ever have two or three people uh, in, I think, a couple of instances you maybe only have one but uh you do you only have one in a couple of instances but for the most part it's either going to be two or three characters uh, occasionally you will get a guest character but you never actually get to swap in and out your party members so um you know you will have uh, a different but very scripted um uh, party going into all of these sections which is true for both the battles and also for um what I like to call the running around bits um, <laughs> or environmental exploration. So uh, it, this is not a platformer by any stretch of the imagination, and it is kind of linear. Um, if you are used to playing games with a world map, this is not that. For the most part, you uh, you will get the chance to kind of explore certain areas but in order to progress the storyline, you can't really do things out of order. You kind of have to follow the path that the game has laid out for you. So um, what I want to look at going forward is uh, whether we think it's too linear, first of all, or if that works for us. And also tied to that, the pacing of the game, which is something that uh, a number of people, including some of our forum correspondents, 
had some issues with, uh, like Cal Luke, who says, the biggest disappointment of the game for me is the gameplay and pacing. I found doing the odd jobs in the towns very boring, with too many squeezing down narrow passages, load screens, parts that could have been replaced with smaller environments as they are, in fact, quite vacuous. And DeMonth, who says, FF7R also has probably the most time-wasting I've seen in a game ever, and took it from maybe a 9 or a 10 to a 7 at best. All the lethargic puzzles to get in between areas, waiting for Red to get into position, just to wait for Red to jump to pull a switch, three-second holds on literally every in-world physical action, the loading screen shimmy, tight walkways where you have to walk very slowly, that miserable Tifa control moment, walking set pieces, a million-minute cutscene followed mm -hmm. by nothing but a straight hallway that leads to another million-minute cutscene, plenty of nothing side quests, the slow vent crawl. Literally everything in this game felt like the stairs. Um, so my question to you guys is, is uh, is this what you experienced as well? Did you, is it correct what to go all the way back to uh, what we were talking about at the beginning? Is it correct to say that a maybe seven or eight hour section can be expanded into a full on game? Or does this all just feel a little bit superfluous or a combination? It, it's probably a combination. It, it, is, it is a, it is a padded game. It is a nakedly padded game. I don't think there's any hiding that. And I think that's a function of development, like rebooting development and just them needing to to flesh out this part of the game with some combat gameplay areas. I don't massively mind that. Um, I think having played Final Fantasy X, 12 and 13, the lineage of the more linear games in this series um, is a mixed one. And I think you get the good and the bad here of that. But, however, Final Fantasy XV was a very odd duck in terms of having that open world and then an extremely linear bit and, and the development problems around that game as well. It makes sense to me that the game made sense in terms of the linearity and therefore I didn't mind it. That's not to say there weren't dungeons that just uh, like the waste port, the wastewater pump mini game in the sewers or whatever. <laughs> it's just made me want to quit the game. And actually the pacing wise with the padding towards, I, I, I really disliked, I think the back quarter of this game for pacing wise. And I think it's the drum dungeon. That's the worst offender as that the commenter mentioned is because it is just, solid padding with all the the yeah some of the some of the more yep. egregious kind of padding methods and it just goes on way too long and then there's an enormous boss rush to the end and so i but i, I think i was enjoying the, the game up to wall market past wall market a lot more and then the back the back bit really soured me actually quite badly it has that one section where you're literally chasing down a wild animal that has swallowed a key in the sewers <laughs> for like an hour. Like this game's padded as hell. And um and I and so I directly compare it to Final Fantasy thirteen, which in a sense which for linearity specifically, I'm not sure if linearity is a word, but let's go with it. Um yeah. they he that game I was very frustrated with how linear it was and very confused by some of the story things and, and i got very easy to dismiss it and easy to walk away from it um this game has a lot of similar structure to that but it was a world that i was already familiar with and a and a set of characters that i was already attached to so i personally gave that a pass i'm not sure if coming to this blind kind of like james did 
if I would be as willing to overlook those things. I think it was better in a lot of ways, but they, there are so many sections of this game where it really does just feel like a whole lot of padding to beef out that hour count. And I'm not sure if that was the, the necessary intent or if it was just a um, consequence of what you were talking about, Tom, about kind of its development history and like piecing, like literally stitching pieces together. Um, from what had already been created, um, but it does it, it is it is for sure a problem in this game. I'd like to see them kind of streamline that for the for the next installment, just because they've now, after the troubled development of the first installment, maybe maybe now they have a little bit more of a clear vision. That's me jumping to conclusions, but but yeah, this game this game does have a pacing and a linear problem, and those problems I'm able to write off as a fan from the from the original, but I but I still was having moments towards the end of that game. Getting to Shinra Tower, climbing up, doing a few, uh, it just kind of felt like, wow, this is really, there were a couple times where I thought I was at the point of no return and the game went on for another five hours, you know, and it was kind of like that those things kept coming. To draw a bow on uh, the pacing issue, uh, one is from, uh, again, a little bit more from Seth, who says, of course, you can't turn an eight-hour section into a full 50-plus-hour game without some padding, and this is where the remake loses some momentum, as the side quests are mostly dull and some of the new characters add very little. However, I did enjoy having more backstory to the secondary Avalanche members, and it was also great to see Midgar as an actual megacity that felt lived in. And then from Sage plus Onion Knight... I'm still hot and cold on the additional story elements. Jesse's side story was one of many highlights, but as much as I like the idea of playing with players' nostalgia in Remake's story, I wasn't entirely confident in how that aspect was presented through the use of stupid, wishy shadow people. <laughs> Said shadow people also stepped on one of my favorite parts of the game, the slow, atmospheric moment in the Shinra HQ prison. It remains to be seen in future installments whether these additions will enrich the whole remake endeavor or just turn a game that means something into total self-indulgent meta-nonsense. For the most part, though, my hopes are high. As flawed as remake can be, it's one of the fun most fun and charming games I've played in a while. Uh, so here's where I would like to call out a uh, section in particular that has a lot of what could be considered side quests, but I think is one of the mo more coherent sections because it ties those side quests into the main story. Uh, and that's Wall Market. So uh, Wall Market is a sequence that does exist in the original Final Fantasy VII. And I think there was a lot of concern over whether it would be handled in anything like an appropriate manner, given that the central kind of um, conceit of it is uh, we talked about uh, Don Corneo already and his quest to find a bride. Well, the the uh, actual kind of thing that you are doing here is trying to dress Cloud, who is a, a male character, as a woman so that he can be considered as one of the brides. At, at that time, they are uh, trying to get into his mansion in order to get Tifa out, who has gone in there for a uh, kind of avalanche centric uh mission that she has been going on so there was uh quite a bit of talk that i remember about how this was going to be handled because this was not a great this is not a great scene in the original final fantasy 7 but also that was 25 years ago and standards have kind of caught up to where they probably should have been in the first place and just having a character dress in women's clothing for a laugh is not something that I think people were looking forward to. So there was talk of maybe they were going to cut this. There was talk of maybe it'll be something different. 
But in the end, they did keep the scene, uh, or the, the sequence, I guess. It's more than just a scene. And they really expanded on it in a way that I found interesting. Uh, I've referenced the fact that in order to receive one of the pieces of, uh, of the puzzle, you have to do what amounts to a rhythm minigame with a character who runs the Honeybee Inn, which is another thing that... Uh, it's kind of a dance club. It's not. It's not a strip club, but it has kind like a of cabaret. a seedy yeah. undertone a little bit. Yeah, a cabaret. And we know how I feel about cabaret mini games. <laughs> I love them. Uh, this is not that, but uh, it, it does have. It, it is it, at its heart. It is a rhythm game, and if you do well enough, then you pass. Uh, but the way that it is packaged is just so joyous and so loving, and the character that you meet, uh, who we also referenced, Andrea Rodea, is uh, a male character referred to as he throughout, but also is kind of has some androgynous characteristics or at least characteristics that might be considered more traditionally feminine. And it it it's perfect. Like it fits, it works. Cloud is not ashamed to have done what he did. And, you know, he, he one of my one of my favorite uh, and I, you all probably going to know where I'm going with this one. But one of one of my favorite um, lines that Cloud has in the whole thing is when uh, when Tifa figures out that it is Cloud in this dress because somehow she does not know from the beginning um, she, she just kind of she starts to go very shocked and then Cloud's response is nailed it. I know. Moving on. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I just yeah. that's just a delightful thing for me. I really enjoy that this was not treated as a joke. It was treated as what it should have been from the beginning, which was a necessary part of the plot that, you know, is might seem ridiculous and out of context, but it actually really just kind of works. Uh, in a way that I was not expecting. So um, I, I wanted to open up, open it up here to talk a little bit about Wall Market. If you guys have any thoughts or feelings on that, did they pull it off? Am I insane? Et cetera, et cetera. I don't think you're insane. I and not only do I think they pulled it off, but I, I'm just, I don't want to say proud because that's giving like way too much credit uh, to the to, <laughs> to the big video game company. But like, I'm just relieved that they didn't fumble it in a way that made me embarrassed to be a fan of the game. And they did yes. do that. And that makes me happy. And that's literally as simple as I can get about it. Like it, they just, yep. they did yep. not screw it up in a <laughs> profound way that I would that's come to expect. That's pretty good for square to be fair. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like I would come to expect the, not just necessarily square, but any major video game company handling any type of sensitive issue, especially now. Like it, uh, I just, it, it was, a joy to play through and I look forward to playing through it again. And, and uh, yeah, I just think they did right by it. I think um, that's kind of the secret of, of wall market all over, isn't it? Is things that were a bit of a joke in the first, in the original game that they found a way to make sense within the story. Like whether that's clouds uh, putting on a dress, also bring together kind of, all of the non-main story-related stuff from the rest of the game in terms of the angel and doing the side quests and helping people in the slums. And what you realize is Walmart isn't the way it is because Don Corneo is such a crooked, awful person at the top of this hoarding wealth. It's it's in spite of him because of the people of Walmart and particularly the three kind of um, second-in-commands, if you like, but the, the three who you realize 
all of whom want what's best for the people in in wall market um and like Aerith's dress is nicer depending upon how many side missions you've done it's a pointed comment made by madam m that if you are helping people she will be more inclined to help you um you know that kind of stuff really it it brings as i say a lot of the stuff in the game a lot of the themes of the game together in a way that is i think is really satisfying mm. and and doesn't treat stuff that either was a joke in the original version of the game or could have seemed like a joke in this uh remake and doesn't treat them like that like yes hell house is still kind of ridiculous and and ludicrous but not in a way that is is a joke if you like it's more a spectacle and it makes for a, a boss fight that is memorable and notable and still weird but cool i think <laughs> for me i think this was a standout but uh i i there is of course quite a lot of uh story that they have sandwiched in here uh, sandwich makes it sound like it doesn't fit it does uh in my opinion anyway and um it it really fleshes out kind of the uh the eight hours or so that maybe you might have experienced before if you were a fan of the original Final Fantasy VII or the beginning part of the story, regardless of whether you were or not. Uh, and we have some forum correspondence regarding that. We have this one from Magical Isopod who says, Most disappointing, though, is the narrative direction they've chosen to go in here. Meta narrative has been done to death in games at this point, and knowing that Tetsuya Kingdom Hearts 365 over two days Nomura is behind the helm does not engender any confidence in me. My greatest fear is that the end goal is something of a Final Fantasy cinematic universe, which was also hinted at in Kingdom Hearts 3, another Nomura project. That way, Square Enix can point at fan service properties like Dissidia and Brave Expius and shout, look, this is our plan along, we're so very clever. For me, the decision to fundamentally alter the story comes off as less artistically creative and more as cynical corporate brainstorming. Uh, in a more positive direction from Marlu, they say, where the original game used microcosmic spaces to fire the player's imagination and evoke a much grander whole, the remake sometimes falters in its literal representation, particularly with the dull transitional areas. Structurally, it is uneven with plenty of backtracking and fetch quest dumps. And from a mechanical perspective, it struggles to teach you how to make the most of its deep combat system. It's certainly not without flaws. And yet, in the many moments where the ambition is realized, where the past and pre present con converge symbiotically, it's a uniquely joyous experience. I must have watched the opening cutscene 20 times with a big grin and a lump in my throat as that iconic fanfare heralds the famous title logo and we swoop down into the bombing mission. While the game offers little more freedom than a train journey, I loved each stop off at Walmart, 7th Heaven, Shinra HQ, and everywhere in between. It wasn't just that these reconstructions were so technically impressive, it was how they realized my teenage dreams and elevated them beyond my imagination. As with the new Donk City finale, it was the weight of a lifelong love for video games and the years of anticipation which made these moments resonate even more deeply. I sympathize with those who wanted a more literal upgrade, but I'm happy that it takes a more daring path, even if it is incoherent at times. Evidently, it's a game about the original game and about the weight of memory and expectation. While the narrative and symbolism lacked focus toward the end, Overall, the game refreshed my enthusiasm and curiosity for the world and characters. At this point, I really can't predict what the future of Final Fantasy VII holds, and for a lifelong fan, that's incredibly exciting. So we've talked about the uh, the basic kind of storyline uh, here and there, uh, but I do want to uh, talk a little bit more specifically about the changes, and um, by that I don't really mean 
specifically what is different between the original Final Fantasy VII and this, but how those changes are kind of signified and um, the whispers, which we have, uh, we've kind of alluded to a couple of times, but haven't really gone into. So um, let's start off by me asking you guys, um, did the whispers work for you? I'd kind of like to start with James here, because given that you came into this not having played the original Final Fantasy VII, I suspect you might have a slightly different read, or might have had, at the beginning at least, a slightly different read on what the deal Mm. was with them. So, obviously, I've heard a lot of people, you know, fans of, of the original say, I don't know how anyone who hasn't played the original would have a clue what's going on here. And mm. I sit quite well with stories that are deliberately vague and deliberately withholding of information. Um, so obviously, therefore, in this case, I'm predisposed to say, okay, I don't know exactly what's going on here, but I trust that the answer is coming. Maybe not even in this game, but there is a point. So I was absolutely fine to see Sephiroth early. I was absolutely, not knowing it was early, but to see Sephiroth that early without much information about as to why he's there, what's going on, that kind of thing. Because I understood that I didn't have context for the the the, the original story. And with the, the whispers, I think it's made pretty clear early on that there's something weird that Aerith can see them and no one else can, and then slowly other characters can start to see them. And with Sephiroth and with Aerith, their interaction with the Whispers very clearly says that they know something that's happening to this world that nobody else does. And by the end of the game, it's pretty clear, Aerith's kind of alluded to it a couple of times, things are not going as they quote-unquote should or did before or however you want to kind of term it. And so playing through a second time, every time I see the Whispers, I understand that they are a force representative of, if you like, Final Destination or whatever, where they are trying to alter things, whether that's to get time, as it were, were back on track or not. It's quite easy to see where the whispers pop up. Pay attention to those moments because something, fate, destiny, whatever, is trying to intervene and change the course here. And I think it's interesting that Aerith and Sephiroth both do not want that to happen. They essentially both stand against the whispers, even though what they want is different from one another. They both are trying to change fate, if you like, in some way. Um, and I think that's interesting. I think that's that's a cool setup for the game. And just to, to touch on something that I'll probably end up in my closing saying is, Remake can be a lot of things. It does not have to just be, right, we're going to retell the same story, but with new graphics. You know, remasters have to be something close to that. You know, in music, remaster is a a very specific term, but then you also have cover versions of songs. You also have remixes, and you also have uh, reorchestrations and rearrangements. And they're all different versions of taking something that was original and doing something different with it. That can be close to what the original was, or it could be something completely different. It could be a sample used in a completely different track, to again go back to a music analogy. And so I like the fact that they are putting in clues and hints for newcomers and for existing fans that things are not going to be what they are. Like This is probably as close to the original story as this series of Final Fantasy VII Remake games is going to be. 
I don't expect the next one to be called Remake Part 2. I expect it to be re-birth, re-something else, you know. <laughs> Some weird subtitle, yeah. It, it, I think it's going <laughs> to be because there's enough re-words in Final Fantasy VII lore that even I know sure. from just having played this one and not from having now gone and played Final Fantasy VII. There's enough words there that are significant that, yeah, this one's remake, but now things are different, so the next one isn't, you know. And I think that's cool. One of them's going to have to be Reunion in For that sure. case. Probably the last yeah. one. Yeah. 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 For but, sure. Uh... They're going to have to avoid whatever the Matrix chooses to do next. <laughs> I yeah. don't want to be a purist completely. I don't like that the game is called Remake and it doesn't have part one and it doesn't have a clear label of what this is. And I think we end up in a very muddy place that I'm disappointed about. But like I say, I don't want to be a complete purist about it. And I really do respect that the, the, the creative leads, you know, completely their right to do something brave and different and subversive. Well, we we do have some uh, correspondence that uh, some of which agrees with that and some of which uh, is is a little bit uh, less so uh, on the on the whispers or bad front. But um, when I uh, the first uh, correspondence is from Third Drawing. When I think of a remake, my mind goes to Shadow of the Colossus and the Crash remake on PS4, virtually the same with improved graphics and controls. It also goes to the Resident Evil remake on GameCube, a reimagining with some quality of life improvements, but the core slash essence of the original game intact. FF7 is not a remake. Let's be clear, Square knowingly and willingly deceived people by calling this a remake when it's basically a sequel that no one wanted. And then Ben77million says, allusions to the game being a follow-up to the 1997 one are peppered throughout in the form of the obnoxious Whispers, whose appearances grow in size until they engulf the experience during the bewildering finale. Perhaps I've fallen into a trap here by criticizing the Whispers, which might be the writer's attempts at personifying fans' stringent demands, but in making corporeal their frustrations with fans, the developers have managed to only justify many of their apprehensions specifically fears that remakes writers might fail to recapture the spirit of the original. The images and events that form the ending seem to exist less to bring this first installment to a cohesive conclusion and more to shoehorn contrived hype into a climax that didn't need it. The finale also tells us to expect further forays into the unknown, a concerning notion given that remake is at its most awe-inspiring when exploring a familiar world from fresh angles, finding new depths and details therein. When straying into new territory, it feels much less assured and frequently undermines the gravity of the original. I, I, I do find it really interesting how, and obviously this is a, a subset of, of, you know, it's the forum feedback we happen to have received, and it's obviously a subset of how certain fans will feel. But it is one of those where, obviously we can go back and play the original now. I did. There are, there are ways to play it on modern platforms that's available to us. And and I get wanting to see that, but with modern bells and whistles. But at a certain point in changing like the combat system, which is undeniably changed from the original, should the story also have to be exactly the same? Does the script have to be exactly... How close to the original does it have to hew to be called a remake when we also have, you know reboot wouldn't also fit this but we've seen tomb raider reboot we've got a, a dead space reboot coming up where they did change an awful lot not just about the stories but about the characters as well thinking of tomb raider specifically and so in this case i don't want to quibble over semantics this is a a remake and what they are doing yes is meta commentary by changing the story and making it 
knowing of the original story so it exists in the same universe and is not you know blank slate let's start again but i think that's in, that's something that i don't i've not seen be done in games certainly not in triple a games of this sort of level and therefore i i'm excited by this and i i understand i'm not a 20 year yeah. fan of the original i'm coming at it new now so the fact that i like it do, I, I don't have the perspective to dislike it in the way that you know, uh, some people we've heard from do, but yeah, it it, it definitely did not for a, a split second uh, occur to me to be bothered by that at all. I mean, and uh, as a twenty year fan of the original, I feel the same way that you do, James. So I, th- I think it goes back and forth. I I would prefer to have a new experience to play, not the same experience but nicer looking. Um, and I in that new experience, I don't mind the concessions of how new they make it. Hopefully, it's good. Hopefully, I end up liking it. But I but I. I'm in, in favor of them taking those extra steps. So I think it can go both ways. All right. So um, I want to start wrapping up here. And uh, to do so, I want to read a, a few final pieces of correspondence from the forum. Uh, again, thank you so much to everybody who wrote uh, who wrote in. I, uh, I, I was kind of overwhelmed by by a lot of what was going on there um and in a good way in a good way um so again canemrince.com slash forum and uh give us your thoughts on any of the upcoming shows that we will be uh that we will be putting on uh this is from two smoking controllers who says so as an immense fan of the original i was ready to hate this with every part of my being Every time there was an announcement, it seemed like Square was saying all the wrong things, and after the debacle that was Final Fantasy XV, I had lost all faith that Square even knew how to make games anymore. Regardless, I couldn't help myself. It was the fabled remake that had been teased for as long as I can remember. I pre-ordered and popped that bad boy in my console on day one. I can't remember the last time I'd been so happy to be wrong. The game has issues, yes, but most games do. What's incredible is all the things the game does right, and how it expands the world that I've spent countless hours in in my youth. I even enjoyed the way they handled the OST. I could go on and on, but all that needs to be said is that I'll be pre-ordering every single volume of this remake all the way to the day I die. <laughs> oh, noted. Yes, it might take that long. Hopefully, hopefully not, but uh, we'll see. Uh, Noop Raptor says, I am one of those people who have been dreaming of an FF7 remake ever since the PS2 was first announced. When it finally arrived, I couldn't have been more delighted. I think it does such a superb job of marrying the essence of what people loved about the original with modern design. I think this is best exemplified by the inclusion of the legendary Hell House. In previous years, when I've explained to people why I love the original FF7 so much, I have often talked about this quirky sense of humor that the game has, and as an example of that, I reference this particularly bizarre enemy that appears as a random encounter in the train graveyard section in the original game. It's a little house that comes to life and attacks you and even fires rockets at you. It is completely cartoony, inexplicable, and just plain weird. And you play some of the modern FF games, like 15, which has its moments, but is a bit po-faced at times, and you can't really imagine them including that enemy in a modern Final Fantasy game. But then the remake arrived, and all the bizarreness and campiness and fun is there, and even the Hell House is there. And it's an incredible boss fight. I couldn't believe it, and I was delighted when it turned up for what was an epic, ridiculous, completely over-the-top battle. It can even fly now. I was grinning ear-to-ear throughout the fight, and I'm so pleased that they managed to pull this off so well. Mark FM 007 says, This was my first Final Fantasy game after years of being intrigued by the series, but not unsure where to start. I enjoyed the demo and picked it up in May of 2020. I enjoyed it immensely and have a real affection for it now, partly because of how it helped me to get through a tough period of isolation and difficulty in the world. I love the characters, the combat, and the incredible soundtrack. 
It's not really like anything I've played before, and I think that added to how memorable it was for me. I really enjoyed how it combined character depth and emotional sincerity with a sense of spectacle and bonkers sense of humor. I enjoyed the dynamic between each of the characters and memorable moments such as reuniting with Tifa at Seventh Heaven, walking along rooftops with Aerith, dancing on stage, and fighting giant houses and fat chocobos, along with many more. There's a lot of heart in its portrayal of Midgar, Avalanche, and the fight against Shinra, and it was exactly what I needed at that time. While the game has its flaws, I loved it, and I ended up feeling glad that this was my introduction to the Final Fantasy series. And we're going to wrap up our forum correspondence with another, uh, another bit from T-Bone254, who says, When I finished the game, I was so disappointed with the story changes that I immediately picked up my phone and began browsing internet forums looking for justification for all the furious anger I felt about the game. And I found plenty of it. But while browsing, I came across a post that put something in a different perspective for me, and I'm a bit disappointed in myself that I was so caught up in my own disappointment that I didn't realize it. Basically, this poster said that for the first time since the game released, we get to play through Final Fantasy VII and not know what happens. We get to experience Final Fantasy VII for the first time again, and while I think I would have preferred a faithful remake, I must admit I am a little excited for this new experience. And we also have a number of three-word reviews, a lot of them, actually. Uh, thank you so much to everybody. Uh, on the day of recording, we put out a call for three-word reviews on uh, at Kane and Rince on Twitter. And uh, James, will you please start us off? Sure. Magical Isopod says, prefer the original. Third Drawing says, play the original. Seth says, actually a sequel? Our own Rich Davison says, Chadley effing sucks. Except he didn't say effing. He said something else. Uh, Sadie Flair says, surprisingly comprehensively progressive. Scott Bodenheimer says, no more pull-ups. Ben Wilde says, nostalgia-fueled romp. James Cresswell says, remake are sick. <laughs> uh, Sam Tick, the planet's dying. Lock, stock, and two smoking controllers says, better than expected. Ben Perry says, awkward starting point. Mark says, charming, brilliant, bonkers. Uh, Safe says, respectfully reimagined reunion. No more Spiros says, ruined crisis core. Porg of Prophecy says, everything I wanted. Tapir says, impossibly beautiful renegades. Uh, Wes Foster has too much filler. Peter Cleave says, amazed it exists. Lee Shenton says, beautifully reimagined memories. Will Cross says Magnificent Meta-Narrative Reunion. Tom Hewlett has Honeybee Incredible. Is that three? <laughs> we're going we're gonna to allow it <laughs> this time. <laughs> Electric Noir says Did Not Disappoint. Christopher Love says Play Six Instead. And Tales from the Backlog says Character Work Shines. So I think we are all coming from a pretty similar place for our summaries. So I'm going to go first because I've talked a lot and I would like for you guys to wrap me up. <laughs> um, I really liked Final Fantasy VII Remake. Um, I, it is not, I, I did not think that it was a remake in the traditional sense of a remake. And for me, that's okay. I didn't need it to be that. And I was really happy with what it brought in from the original game and how it kind of transformed that. I, I didn't think it was perfect. There are some things that maybe I felt like it didn't need, but overall, I, I really enjoyed playing it through the first time, 
and I really liked going back to it. Uh, some of the side quest stuff was maybe a little bit not so much my favorite, but uh, even so, I, I had a lot of fun with it. It's beautiful, and all of those people are very hot, and I would let any of them step on me, <laughs> which is, I think, the highest compliment that I can give this game. Um, so, yeah, I, I do... If you have... Um, uh, PlayStation Plus and did in uh in, in the past year or so, then you might already have a copy of this. So if you haven't played it and you've gotten this far, um yeah, I think you should play this game. I do recommend it. Uh so ha have at it. Uh Brian, how about you? Yeah, I'm gonna I think I'm gonna be uh, pretty brief in just saying that um I think it's really cool that I get to re experience uh this part of, the, of this game that I loved. And I think it's also equally cool that it's a lot of brand new things that I've never experienced before. I think the battle system was great. I loved the summons. Um, I loved uh, kind of experimenting and tooling around with my loadouts and, and how I, I worked through the combat system. I also liked not exactly knowing what was coming next, and that's more of what I'm looking for in video game experiences now. I think 18-year-old me would have wanted a faithful remake, like in the sense of what we were talking about before. Um, I think very much now... I'm looking for new experiences. I'm looking for fresh eyes on the thing that I love and 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 kind of shaping it in in a new in a new way and I'm totally down for that. Um if you've made it to the end of this podcast, you've probably already played the game, but if you haven't, you should absolutely check it out. Um and I am really excited to see where they go next with it, but I also will say that I'm a big fan of the Kingdom Hearts series. So, <laughs> use, so, oh, yeah. so that could say more about me than you would think. So I might be down for some of the more wacky uh, things that the turns this could take than some of the people who are looking for a more faithful adaptation. But for my money, I think it's it's great, and I will be absolutely there on day one for the next one. Do, do I need to play years. Kingdom Hearts now? Is that what I'm <laughs> gathering from this? <laughs> yes! Uh. <laughs> All right, thank you very much, Brian. Yeah, play Kingdom Hearts. Um, <laughs> Tom? Um, this game is a, it's a bit like salted caramel chocolate for me, where it's like, I really like caramel, uh, but I don't necessarily want to put salt in there there's salt in here and it's quite an interesting extra flavor and so i i kind of end up feeling like there's there, there's you know it's a piece of chocolate i love chocolate you should play it it's a it's a fun game there's lots to recommend it and some very very high highs like literally moments regardless of the original game there are moments here that are just extraordinarily fun and silly and video gamey um there's so much music and music is a huge part of the series for me and they just threw everything at it they didn't want something coherent or by one composer or any kind of thing like that they just threw absolutely every everyone at the company had a go at something in the soundtrack it, it sounds like for the bet for the better lots of fun um but the the final part of the game was very disappointing to me and it was capped off by a quite a disappointing kind of whispers final boss sub final boss almost final boss but i'm not so upset that i hate the game i'm not so upset that i wouldn't recommend it to people so so yeah it's mixed but mostly positive um i'm really glad i played it i don't think i'll play it again anytime soon just because of that padding and that back section but um the highs well you know 
made it very, very worthwhile and worth waiting for as well. And last but certainly not least, is this your favorite Final Fantasy game of all, <laughs> all both of them? Uh, <laughs> James. Uh, James, take us home. There's a world in which this remake was a very faithful retelling of uh, Final Fantasy VII, and taking this game for what it is, it's up there as one of my favorite games of all time. 18 months ago, I'd never played a Final Fantasy... 18 months ago, a lot of things were different in the world. I also had not played a Final Fantasy game at all. And I could have just played this one and thought, enjoyed that, really, really liked this game. I will wait until part two, whatever they end up calling it, comes out, and I will just experience Final Fantasy VII through this remake. The fact that they made changes and made it obvious to me and Newcomer that this was changing things meant that I went back and played Final Fantasy VII. Even diehard fans of that game said to me, no, play a modern version of it, use the quality of life toggles. You do not want to go back and play this game as it was originally released in 1997. Use the speed uh, toggle and, and you know, etc. Blitz through some of the slower stuff and you know the grindy stuff, etc. Um, but... The fact that this this remake is different meant I went back and played Final Fantasy VII because I wanted to see what the original was and what differences there already were and to know for part two and going forward on remake what's going to be different because it's adding to something that already exists, not trying to replace it. That's my take on it. I accept that. I am a newcomer to this. The fact that I put remake, you know, as quite happily say it was a favorite game of last year and one of my favorites of all time um, means that I am now a series fan going forward and uh, I, I I can't quite express how cool it is to get this kind of route into uh, a series like this where I've got the older games to go back to but Final Fantasy 16 is now up there on my you know uh, most anticipated games partly because the battle system looks like it may be something similar. Um, but I'm interested to see, because it's clearly not a, s- a similar sort of setting or style of um, story to Final Fantasy VII. So the fact that I've got all of this whole world now opened up to me, thanks to this game, uh, is the most ringing endorsement I could could give that. So yeah, I'm a- absolutely excited to see where this is going. And the more crazy, the better, apparently, is how I feel about Final Fantasy and my anime uh, sort of leanings in terms of story and the way it goes. So, uh, yeah, that's where I'm at, which uh, is not where I expected to be two years ago, having not played any Final Fantasy game. All right. Well said. Thank you very much to all of you. So, yes, it just remains for me, Leah, to thank Tom, Brian and James, as well as our correspondents, Editor Jay, who hopefully will not kill me about this. Uh, Plus, of course, you for listening Uh, and to tell you that in next time in issue 495, we're going back to a lovely version of the Metroidvania genre with Ori and the Will of the Wisps.